be seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Acts 21. Today we have Paul in Jerusalem, and interestingly enough, Paul was in Jerusalem for Pentecost. We see that earlier in Acts, which puts him there around this time of year. So a few years ago when we started this series, I had planned all this perfectly so that today I could I could present to you Paul in Jerusalem in the springtime. Now, the, the, the fact that he was there, probably, probably more like, well, was more like May. The month is not so interesting as the year. So we think that Paul is in Jerusalem around 59 AD or so. And that's significant because just 10 years later or so, would surround Jerusalem, lay siege to it, and put Jerusalem, the city, through about six months of absolute abject terror, horror, possibly some of the worst human suffering in the history of the world. It was indeed at that time the great tribulation. It was the worst thing ever, and it was cut short for the sake of the elect, but it was horrific. So horrific, I can't read the historical quotes with kids in the room. Uh, Josephus's account of the terror of Jerusalem, the downfall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it's just, it's just stunning. So our text, Acts 21, Paul's in Jerusalem about 11 years before this terrible thing would take place. Uh, Jerusalem was surrounded in 70 AD in March Paul's here in May, kind of the same time of year, uh, harvest time, Passover and Pentecost time, and just 10, 11 years after Paul is in Jerusalem, the city is just desolate. It's just utterly, utterly ruined. And I bring that up because what we see in our text today is really the reason why Jerusalem was destroyed. It's really, it's really an explanation for why the city was brought down to its knees 10 or 11 years later, rather. Uh, What we're going to see in our text today is the reason why the temple was destroyed and why Judaism, as it had been practiced for for centuries, had to be completely reinvented with the absence of the temple. So we're going to see why that happened today. And that's more than a history lesson because the same reason that this profound calamity fell on the city, so the same cause of uh, marriages that break and relationships that break and churches that break and countries that break. Like what we're gonna see today is the kind of terminal disease that kills collections of people. So let's look at our text. Acts chapter 21, beginning in Verse 17, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, and we're going to find out why he's there later on, but Paul's arrived in Jerusalem, and he meets with James, who is seen at this time as the head of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul greets James and the other 
uh, believing Jews in Jerusalem and gives them an update on all that God had done in his ministry through the, in the Gentiles. Verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, okay, so this is where we get a little tricky. They glorify God and then immediately say to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. And James is like, boy, I'm so glad that God has used you in the Gentile world. And guess what? God is working here. There are many thousands here who love Jesus, but also are very zealous for the law. And they've all been told that you don't want us to observe the law anymore. And so what are we gonna do about this? Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in it in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live on, in observance of the law. So Paul actually does what, what's suggested by James. He, he does what he's asked to do there. And verse 20, uh, verse 20 of that text provides us with our first clue as to the sort of ruinous virus that's at work in the city of Jerusalem. And it's even a work amongst the Christians themselves. Because verse 20 describes a situation where a group of Christian Jews are listening to slander about Paul. Okay, so just tuck that away. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit that again in a moment. But it says in verse 20, these people who are, who are believers in Jesus, who are also very zealous about the law, they have been told, insert lies, about Paul. And so part of the little clues are starting to gather. We're, we're playing, you know, we're playing civilizational CSI here. We're doing an autopsy on why Jerusalem fell. And one of the things is, okay, there's this undue interest in slander and scandalous thoughts and so forth, so much so that even the believers are listening to enemies of the gospel at reporting falsely about Paul's perspective on the law. Now look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, Paul's agreed to take this vow uh, to, 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 to go along with this idea of James to show everyone that he's not anti-law. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple." Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Okay, so now we've got a little second section. We see more slander, more accusations against Paul, more people stirred up with this slander and accusations, and we'll, we'll dissect this a little bit more carefully here in a moment. Now, what we want to see at this stage is that not only are these accusations false, which I'll show you, but there's this massive problem of plank eye happening 
in this particular instance. Jesus says in Matthew 7, you know, while you're trying to pick out the speck in your brother's eye, you've got this massive piece of timber in your own eye. And in this particular situation, the Jews who are accusing Paul of tearing down Moses and violating Moses and violating the law are themselves violating the law. The ninth commandment is to not bear false witness against your neighbor. They're violating the ninth commandment. And they're trying their best to violate the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not murder. So meanwhile, while they're accusing Paul of being anti-law and anti-Moses and anti-temple and so on and so forth, they themselves are eager to defile the temple with lies and innocent blood. This is that classic kind of example of rank hypocrisy at work in a moment of slander and so forth. Okay, but the truth about Paul is so far from what they're alleging. So they're alleging that Paul is just like telling everyone everywhere, just be done with the law entirely. It it has no value, has no purpose. But listen to what Paul actually says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So Paul has said very clearly, I, I, I don't have to observe the law. I, I, I have Christ. I do not have to observe the law. But I'm happy to, to observe the law if by observing the law, I might win some of those under the law to Christ. This is Paul's perspective. It's always been Paul's perspective. It's always been the way he's done things. Uh, we, we, we heard a sermon back in November about Timothy being circumcised, and it has everything to do with what we're talking about right now. So Paul is, Paul is Mr. I'm happy to do this thing in order to serve you. He is not walking around flaunting his liberty. He's, he's a commentator said, Paul is more emancipated than to be enslaved by his emancipation. What does that mean? Well, Paul is so free in Christ that he doesn't need to prove his freedom in Christ. He can surrender his freedom in Christ. He's that free in Christ. He's not a slave to his freedom. And so, so Paul is actually not, not, not at all exhibiting the behaviors they're, they're accusing him of. And then there's something else, which I hinted at, at the beginning, and that's why was Paul in Jerusalem in the first place? Well, he was there because he had spent years and effort and a lot of his own leadership capital trying to raise money amongst the Gentiles to care for the poor in Jerusalem. So the accusation is Paul is teaching Jews to live like Gentiles. The truth is Paul was spent years of his ministry teaching Gentiles to love the Jews. And so we find, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 16, we see this instruction in most of his letters This was a primary part of his ministry, was raising money to care for the saints in Jerusalem. And in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 through 4, he just writes toward the end of the letter. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up 
as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul is like saying, get your stuff together, decide what you're going to give, give regularly so that when I arrive, I don't have to do a collection. Your money will be set aside in verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift for Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And that's what wound up happening. Paul is in Jerusalem to bring money to the poor. All right, so think of what the slander says. Think of the hypocrisy of the slanderers, and then think of the truth. Paul is eager to do whatever he needs to do to win anyone to Christ. If he needs to shave his head, take a vow, whatever, okay. Not only that, but he's actually engaged in a couple years' worth of fundraising to care for the Jews in Jerusalem. So slander says this, their hypocrisy says this, Meanwhile, Paul's totally in the right, and he's just completely different than what the slander is presenting. Okay, so I kind of led all of this up to something about what we just read is the key sort of ingredient, the downfall of marriages and families and churches and cities and so forth. What, what would that thing be? Well, at one level you might say that one thing is that Jerusalem would be undone because it kept mistaking its friends to be its enemies. And that, that might be the essential kernel, the essential virus of a broken relationship, is to mistake your friends to be your enemies, is to think that the person who's actually for you is the problem. Like that, that could be one way of talking about why things fail why things that are relational in nature fail. An internal kind of resentment builds up, a misidentification, prompted obviously by sin and Satan, a misidentification of who is actually on your side and who is actually for you. And the sense that the people who are actually for you, you begin to think are not for you. I mean, you begin to think they're against you. And that could be one way of talking about why Jerusalem fell. Jerusalem actually, before the Roman armies even surrounded them, was subject to extreme infighting. In fact, one of the reasons why Rome stirred up an army to surround Jerusalem was that there was significant infighting already taking place in the city, threatening the rule of law. So one way to talk about the downfall of a thing is to say this grave mistake of confusing someone who was actually totally for you as being against you. And we can kind of dissect this a little bit further, but before we do that, we're kind of on a particular day in the calendar that we need to mention as it relates to all of this. And that is some years prior to Paul being in Jerusalem and receiving this sort of you're our enemy treatment, Jesus, the day that we celebrate on our church calendar today, Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem and wound up weeping over the city of Jerusalem for this very reason. Because Jerusalem kept mistaking its friends to be its enemies. And it did that with Jesus himself. And so in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. 
saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. And you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So what did all the desolation come from? Their savior was there and they did not know that he was their savior. They, they, they counted him as an enemy ultimately. And so the, the, the kernel of this all, goes all the way to Christ, which we'll discuss again here in a moment. The sort of way of thinking through the application of this, let's just think about us for a minute. We love to do that. <laughs> uh, confusing your friends to be your enemies will lead to desolation. Uh, this can happen in a marriage where you begin to think that this other person who's actually more for you than maybe anyone else in the whole world uh, is the problem. You can begin to do this with your parents. You can begin to see your parents as being more the person than they really are. And let's just see kind of the, the way that this works because it shows up in our text pretty clearly. And the first way is, is you know, as we mentioned in verse 20 of chapter 21, this sense of begin to listen to the wrong voices. You know, begin to listen to the accusational part of either your heart or perhaps even the devil himself. You begin to listen to the wrong parts, the wrong voices. That's where the saints in Jerusalem stumbled in verse 20. They listened to the people who were eager to slander Paul. And that's actually why the crowd was stirred up in verse 27. They listened to the wrong voices. But then there's this other thing that happens. and the, the, the allegation is not only that Paul is like doing all these things to tear down Moses, but that he even brought a Gentile into the temple, which was strictly forbidden. So we're talking about kind of the anatomy of resentment here and of mistaking your friends as your enemies. And the first thing is you listen to the wrong voices. You have the accusational kind of thoughts going on in your heart. And number two is once you have those, due to the magic of confirmation bias, you'll begin to see behaviors that you think are proof that your accusations are correct, that this person really is as terrible as you want them to be. And, and what happens in this text in that way is that, is that there happens to be a Gentile who is, I don't, who's just known to be a Gentile, and he's just in the city, right? He's in Jerusalem. He's with Paul. He's in Jerusalem. He did not go into the temple. But because the voices, the, the critical accusational voices were already at work, they see this guy and, the, and they, they, they decide, look, Paul brought this guy into the temple. No, he did not. But they're, they're bridging with confirmation bias. They're bridging the evidence to fit their preconceived accusation, their pre preconceived criticism. Guys, like, this is stuff we do to people we love. This is absolutely stuff we do. We listen to the wrong voices, the wrong critical voices, and then we, once we've kind of let the judge, the inner, the inner uh, 
accuser run wild, then we see something that looks like proof that we were right all along. And even if it's just this much true, we, we, we use it as we entered into our docket as evidence against the other. And of course, while we're doing that, we're also not doing something. We're not asking, we're not, we're not being critical of our own criticism. We're not asking, am I just being a complete jerk right now? You know, um, am, Do I have a plank in my eye as this? Am I the problem? So there's this kind of process that, that we see play out here. And the last step of the process, first step is listen to the wrong voice. Second step is you begin to gather evidence through the magic of confirmation bias. And the third step is violence. <laughs> You've justified your anger, your hatred. You've justified yourself because you've, you've created evidence that they're the problem. And so what we see in our text is, is that they listen to the wrong voices, they use the wrong kind of evidence, it's not really evidence, and then they seize him to kill him. So the third step of this decay in our relationships and so forth is uh, striking out, you know, something like that. And we could just go so much more deeply into this because what's going on here at a basic issue is, is that these people in Jerusalem love the law more than the lawgiver. And so the, the root of what's happening here is actually a spiritual adultery, idolatry. The root of what's happening here is they love something that isn't God and they're afraid that this person's gonna take it. And one of the the choicest relational pieces of scripture that exists is in James 4, 1 through 4, which says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And what you can see happening when this resentment thing that is building up is there's something you love that you shouldn't love as much as you love. It could be attention, it could be rest, it could be peace. You might be super, super irritated by someone in your life who just has the peace that you don't have. Like whatever. This thing that you love enough to resent another person for either having or for potentially pulling away from you, potentially taking from you. And and then this thing kind of develops where you're like, I really think this person is going to keep me from getting this. Like, yeah, James 4, 1 through 4, you want this too much right now. And what was happening in Jerusalem is they wanted, they wanted their ethnicity, their nationality, their traditions, their way of doing it. They want all that preserved. And they love that stuff more than they love Jesus or God, and they're not asking, is it possible that Paul is my friend? They're like, no, because he threatens these things that I love, he's not my friend. He's my enemy. Jesus visits the day of the visitation, Palm Sunday. Jesus says, you did not know the day of your visitation. They didn't ask, is he the savior of the world? Is he my savior? They saw someone who was threatened take away things they loved more than God. So you could go deeper into this, but that's sort of why things break. 
That's sort of why things break. But there's a second, deeper issue at work here, and that is, is that this pattern of accusation and violence began in the original sin with Adam and Eve against God, and it really is just the basic problem of our relationship with God. Eve listened to the wrong voice, and then she looked at the fruit and saw the fruit as evidence, very specious use of evidence here. She saw the fruit as evidence that God wasn't as good as he was claiming to be, that God was withholding. So she listened to the wrong voices, built a case, evidence, so on and so forth, and then in violence disobeyed God, right? And if you really want to know how to really, really ruin something, here's, I'll tell you exactly how. View Jesus more as a than as a savior. That's how you will ruin, and by ruin, I mean hell. The difference between paradise and hell is how you encounter Jesus Christ because we all know he's a threat. We all know he will disrupt things. But if we listen only to the critic, all we see is what Jesus can take and hurt and change. We need grace through the Holy Spirit to say, yeah, all of that, he can take it. Because what he's trying to do for me, he's here to be my friend. He's here to be a friend to sinners. And so I should trust him. I should know the day of my visitation. And so you've got sort of a, you know, a temporal way of ruining temporal things. Confuse your friends as your enemies. And then you've got a way of doing that eternally and winding up in hell. And that is, look at Jesus Christ to be only a threat taking away your beloved sexual preferences or your beloved, you know, pet sin. Look, look at Jesus only as what he can take away. Look at Jesus as an enemy. Completely miss the fact that he's here to save you. That he's, he's here to, to be your friend. If you, if you mistake Jesus to be your enemy, that's full, complete, total desolation. So this passage is actually showing us like right to the core how things go bad. They go bad, one, listening to the wrong voices. Two, building up a case using those wrong voices. Three, violence, all related to mistaking our friends to be enemies. And the worst instance you could do that is with Jesus. And finally, believer, you still do this sometimes to Jesus. Because he keeps knocking and keeps asking and keeps leading, keeps calling. But we should know better because we've gone through this enough times before where it felt like he was going to ruin our lives and it wound up being a blessing. We should know better. And we should say, you're, you're here to be my friend. You're here to bless me. And I don't want to miss this opportunity with fear and disobedience and thinking of you as someone who's just here to mess things up. It's like You're here to mess things up in the same way a plow is here to till a field. It's all, 
intended to be grace upon grace. For communion today, I just want to read Isaiah 53. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The book of John says that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. And it says the light has come into the world, but men fled from the light because they loved their deeds of darkness. In tremendous wisdom, absolute sovereign control and kindness, God worked it out so that when a group of people recoiled in terror at this threat named Jesus and killed him, that death brought atonement for his enemies for those who would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. God in his perfect wisdom anticipated this thing that we do as broken sinners and he used it to bring about salvation and redemption. And so what the table is, is a reminder that Jesus offered himself, offered himself freely, put himself in the situation to be killed and kept himself on the cross to make payment for our sins. So today, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you come and partake of this incredible gift that this wise and loving God has put before you today? Let's pray. Lord God, as we come and partake of the Lord's table, we worship you. We worship you for your strength and wisdom, for your capacity to run history and everything leading all the way to the point in which you would come, take on flesh, live a perfect and sinless life, and die on a cross at the hands of your enemies to redeem your enemies. Lord, we know that you come. We trust in faith that you come as a friend. And so today, whether someone is just needing to remind themselves of that or someone's like, I have been treating Jesus like an enemy and I want to trust him, God, do your work. And may your work be confirmed as it's intended to do through this table today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.